Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Gary Sanders has done a lot of things uh, to do with internal combustion engine powered machines, which is a convoluted way of saying that he's built custom bikes, he's raced bangers, he was involved with Dax, one of the biggest builders of kit cars in the world for 30 years, and, get this, he's a world champion, he was the world champion lawnmower racer. He's, he's done so much stuff, he's a great guest, make sure you stick around for this one, my guest this week, Gary Sander. Gary, yeah. we've, we've talked about this many times on the show, uh, but I'm going to talk about it again, and it's the influence on my uh, passion and my enthusiasm and my... I'm trying to avoid the word career, although I have been involved with cars and bikes all my life, and... One of the places it starts is with two magazines, Custom Car and Street Machine. And I yeah. wonder if, for you, there, there was the same influence. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, custom car. And I, I always used to buy um, Backstreet Heroes and AWOL back in the day when, when AWOL was, was, was about. Well, AWOL came out of BSH, didn't it, when, uh, when Oji left? Yeah. We're talking about a guy, uh, Odgy, who was the editor yeah. of a, a very influential British... I used to work with him. British oh, mo- I know him well, yeah. Motorcycle magazine. And he's, uh, what I wanted to mention, Gary, in case people haven't seen it, is there's a, he's got a really good book, Crazy Odge. Uh, I've not seen that. Yeah, have you not seen it? No, no. Oh, mate, I'm going to send you my copy. Yeah. I am going to send you my... <laughs> I, I'm evangelical about it because it's it's... It's an insight into how somebody develops a lifelong interest in cars and bikes, principally bikes, but a lot of cars as well. Because here's the thing. I remember, right, it's called Crazy Odge. You can get it. I think you can get it on eBay. You can get, it's self-published, but it's, it's a very good book and very well illustrated. And he writes really well. And he explains what it is that makes... It's very good at explaining what it is that makes people interested in machines and why particularly <laughs> men become interested in machines. But I remember Rodgy's Chocolate Pop at the Bellevue Rod and Custom Show, and that, yeah, that yeah. was something that we had up here again, which was hugely influential for me and a lot of people, because that was yeah. one of... It's funny, that was one of the big shows, and the two big shows um, in the UK, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, would have been Doncaster and Bellevue, both in the north of England, and yet, really, the home of... Would you say the home of hot-rodding and modified cars in the UK? It's probably the south-east, isn't it? Well, I, I'm not that sure. I mean, cars, I've, I've only really got back into cars um, sort of in the last uh, sort of... Well, hot-rods, anyway, in the last sort of uh, eight years, nine years. Um, before that, I was, I was working for a kit car company, Dax, for oh, 30 years and then I was into off-road cars uh, and I was in the all-wheel drive club for, for, for quite a few years 
Right, well, let's go back. That's very interesting, and I want to go back to Dax and, and talk about that later in the show. But let's go back to the start and and, and your first... The, I often say to people, the first car you had on the road or the first bike that you had on the road, but the majority, <laughs> the majority of guests that come on this show, including myself <laughs> here, uh, had been operating motor vehicles for quite a number of years... <laughs> <laughs> well, it starts with my dad. My dad tells this great story before they were legally able to. My dad tells this great story about being sent to retrieve a broken down Austin 16 with a tractor and a long chain. And he, dri- he drives the tractor down into the town centre, hooks up this Austin six, this pre-war Austin 16 to drag back to the farm. And along the way, it's quite alarmed to see a police sergeant step into the road and blow his whistle to order him <laughs> to stop. He then says that he recognised the tractor and is my dad going up to Captain's, which was my grandfather's farm, and my dad says, yeah, and the sergeant said, right, well, I'm going up there, give me a lift, move over. <laughs> he recognised the taxi. And my dad said, so we're driving down the A56 the main north-south road coming out of Manchester in a Ferguson tractor towing an Austin 16 with a chain with a police sergeant sat next to him and my dad is 14 years of age has no licence of any description, no test, no tax, no nothing. He's got a police sergeant sat next to him and he said I just, you know, can you imagine can you imagine that now? So when did you start no. messing around with motors? Well, I mean, my first experience, I suppose, with anything actually motorised was um, when I was at school. I bought a Vespa scooter for 60 cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> players, players number six, actually. <laughs> right, so my first, my first on-the-road machine was a Vespa 50 Special, and it was, it was an ill-named device because... It wasn't really special any anyway, apart from, apart from one thing. And I, I wonder if this is... I'm not exactly sure of, of your age, and I hesitate to guess at a gentleman's age. <laughs> I'd never guess at a woman's well, age. I'm, I'm, I'm 66. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'd never guess at a woman's age because uh, <laughs> I like my facial features yeah. the way that are currently arranged on my face. Don't want them modified. So... Uh, yeah, you'd be perhaps not the same era, but you'd remember it. Even though it was a Vespa scooter and thus had a monocoque body and running boards and, and side panels and all that, yeah. it was obliged to wear pedals, as were all um, 50cc machines at the time. So, yeah, so they had to protrude beyond the running boards. Right. So it had, <laughs> it had, as a consequence, zero ground clearance. I mean, I had to master the art of raising the inside pedal to to TDC in a corner to stop the thing from clattering alarmingly on the floor and sitting the thing upright halfway around the corner. (laughs) ANC 51M, I can remember the registration. Can you remember the registration of that one that you got for 66? Well, it didn't have any number plates on it. Bearing in mind, I was only 14 when when I got it. And what I did, I pulled the engine. It was a 150, uh, Vespa 150, and the engine's all on one side. Yeah. And if you turned right with it, the, the bit that stuck out that held the kickstart used to hit the ground and it used to throw you off. 
<laughs> anyway, I took the engine out and I, and I had one of them swim American kids' bikes with about 16-inch wheels. And I bent the back forks apart and I managed to bolt the engine in where the back wheel went. And uh, then it just so happened that the back brake cable was just long enough to go into the carburetor for, for the throttle. So all I had for controls was one lever worked the throttle and the other one was the original front brake, which did absolutely nothing. <laughs> and we took it down the park and I, we put it in third gear, bump started it, and I went roaring off. And I got to about, oh, I must have been doing maybe 40, 50 mile an hour. And all of a sudden it just literally fell in half. And there was me, no crash helmet, nothing. <laughs> Almost wearing this scooter. <laughs> we decided... <laughs> Having fiddled around with Vespers and Lambrettas for a while. The, I mean, this is how quickly things would move, and people later on will try to preserve in aspect of, an aspect of mortaring culture. They'll say, all rockers, rod tritons, all BSA gold stars, <laughs> and Wall Lewis leather jackets, and you go, no, they didn't. No. My dad had a PVC jacket that he got from the <laughs> Army and Navy store. And he had a cafe racer, get this, get this, Gary, a cafe racer, aerial square four. Oh. Come on. I mean, wow. talk about an unsuitable motorcycle. Yeah, but, but cool. the thing, the thing, well, the thing was, Edward Turner designed engine, even though it's not as great yeah. as design, obviously, because yeah. the, re- the rear cylinders didn't get uh, enough cooling. Yeah, but, like my dad said, and he said turning something to a cafe racer basically for a lot of people meant turning the handlebars 180 degrees so that instead of kick it, like, kicking up, they kick down yeah. and sawing off or drilling holes in. Instead of, like, spending money on fantastic parts, Gramica yeah. twin-leading yeah. disc drum brakes or, you know, whatever it was, <clears throat> my dad said you just sawed things off that were heavy or yeah. drilled, drilled holes in everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they do, but they do, and and the thing with scooter scooter culture as well in the UK, the UK, other than well, the UK is the country even more than Italy, I would say, that embraced scooters, Italian motor scooters more than any other. And of course, we started off in '79. I was that generation who went out, saw Quadrophenia, turned top of the pops on, saw yeah. Paul Weller in the jam, and thought, oh yeah, this is miles better than big flares and and. and <laughs> Cheap cheesecloth shirts. So we all bought scooters. We put loads of lights and mirrors on them. Then we decided to set them. One day we decided to set them all off. And then somebody turned up at the scooter club in a Lambretta with all the bodywork taken off it. And I'll tell you the first person that I remember having what became known as a skelly. It was the it was Manny, the bass player in the Stone Roses, the guy who went on to become the bass player in the Stone Roses and Primal Scream. And wow. it was he was the first person. He turned up, and we all thought... So, some people went, that's, you know, that's sacrilege. He'd taken all the bodywork off. There was just the steel tube and the engine, it seemed, and yeah. somewhere to sit. And he'd cut the back loop off, and he'd cut, he'd cut away. He'd cafe racing it. He'd cafe yeah. racing a Lambretta. So I went home and thought, right, I'm going to do that. So I got the hacksaw out, <laughs> put the radio on, put the kettle on, got the hacksaw out, saw, 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 saw. It's like there with my brother. Can you saw a bit? I'm tired. Oh, okay, saw, saw. No, do it straight, like saw, saw, saw. Saw the bodywork away. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people listening will be thinking, ooh, won't you compromise the monocoque? Yes, we had compromised the monocoque, yeah. but we were young and stupid and we didn't know what we were doing. We thought it was okay to saw off all the bodywork 
Like, uh, so, anyway, I get on, like you, bump start, and it's a steep cobble street in Lancashire going down to a, a railway cutting, right? So I get to the corner, turn the turn the handlebars, nothing, just straight on. Because, <laughs> effectively, it now had a hinge in the middle. It, it just, it just, because I'd taken all that you, I didn't, we didn't realise as well that inside the monocoque on those old Vespers, you probably found this out, they were like steel strengthening bars, like rebar in concrete. Yeah. They were like steel strengthening bars to hold the damn thing together to stop yeah. it from. We did, and we'd taken all them off. I saw that off. Here, can you saw? I'm tired. Uh, use your other hand. <laughs> Make a cup of tea. <laughs> this. And so I had, an, I had an earlier LD one fifty, which is which is better. When you take the panels off of that, it's yeah. all it's it's just one big fat tube. Yeah, also, that was the can, thing. A Lambretta you can, was. You can change, yeah, but you can change the handlebars on them as well on the LD. Oh you know yeah, it was much more like a, a motorbike. It was yeah. the engine yeah. was in line. And, yeah, it, and it was a steel, right, yeah. a steel spine a tube, steel tube, and yeah. the bodywork wasn't structural. The Vespa, yeah, which no. I, is a cleverer design, if you will, yeah, um, yeah. was like you said, the engine hung off one side. What they do, of course, is they put a spare wheel on the other side from the engine to kind yeah, of balance yeah. it out. And one of the first things that would happen if you bought a Vespa was that somebody would steal that spare wheel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you think it's pulling to the right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. But it was clever, wasn't it? The yeah. I, I remember when I went to um, I went to test a Yamaha, hub center steered Yamaha GTS thousand, and somebody said to me, "Isn't it clever that that the forks are only on one side of the wheel and you can just take the wheel on and off really quickly?" <laughs> and and he said, "I wonder why no- this was a motorcycle guy." And he said, I wonder why nobody's thought of that before. And I said, I think they've made about 25 million Vespers in Italy. And, yeah. and many, many millions more in India where yeah. all the machinery ended up. Yeah. And, and they're all like that, mate. So, <laughs> yeah, somebody <laughs> did have that idea. Yeah. It, it was a long time ago. So did you did you sustain any serious injuries in the in the incident? Did it did it encourage you to wear no, a crash no, helmet just, or protective just, gear? Or did, yeah. no, it didn't even encourage me to wear a crash helmet. Because when I was 16, you, you could still ride a motorbike without one. I had a Triumph Thunderbird, a nice Triumph Thunderbird, which I put long forks on it and squashed the frame and all the usual things, you know, after watching... A film easy rider. There's a bloke that I know who bought a jet helmet when he when he went to get his bike. This is Royal Enfield, um, and he went to get it. And he said, back in the day, he said, you don't realise how eagerly motor, the motor industry embraced higher purchase, the take up of higher purchase in the UK. Yeah. He said, yeah. not only if you went to get a bike, they give you a package. I mean, you probably remember this. If you if you went in the shop to buy a motorbike, they'd go, they'd go, oh, you'll be needing um, spare tires in a few thousand, new tires in a few thousand miles. We'll throw in, we'll throw in a set of extra tires. Oh, and you'll need an, an oil change. We'll throw in the oil. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa! I can't afford all this. And they go, no, 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 no don't worry. It's all, it's all on the tick. It's all on the drip. Yeah. It's in the book. Every, so you get the bikes on HP on HP, but also parts oil, tyres and gear. So he'd got a helmet and he said, I turned up at this local cafe, this was up here near Manchester, and he said, and I thought, he said, I was leaving the house and I looked in, because everybody used to have like, do you remember when people had a telephone table in the hall? If you were like a regular person, if you weren't posh, you'd have a telephone table and it'd it'd have an address book 
and there'd be like there'd be an ashtray and there'd be a mirror so you could check your, the mirror so you could check yourself. He said, I remember looking at myself in the mirror on the way out and I thought, I look cool in this helmet. He said, and I got to the cafe and everybody I pulled up, new new bike, and he's there with his crash helmet. He said, and one of the lads went, Look who it is, Jeff Duke. <laughs> you know, because he had a helmet on. It was like it was like when seatbelts came out. But people yeah, thought that yeah. if anybody wore a seatbelt... Yeah, it wasn't cool. They, would, <laughs> they were doing it because they thought they were like a racing driver and had to be yeah. restrained because they were going... So... <laughs> it's funny how attitudes change, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I used to wear a German uh, fibreglass <laughs> German helmet with just a bit of foam rubber glued in it. <laughs> Not and, with... and a few of my mates had them as well. But Not... I even had an accident on the, on the Triumph Thunderbird. It had a sidecar on it. And I was roaring through the town with a bunch of my mates. And I thought the chair was coming up in the air as I was going around this bend, but it wasn't. It was actually the the bolts that held the sidecar to the bike had come loose, and the bike was leaning over, and the chair was still flat on the. I think floor. you, I think Gary, I think you've been watching too much Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it went off the road, and I crashed straight into the front of Dorothy Perkins. You know, the, the lady no, shop. Not hold on. We should explain because because <laughs> speed shops. Sweet shops listen to all over the place. When Gary says he crashed into Dorothy Perkins, he doesn't mean an unfortunate pedestrian called Dorothy Perkins. It was it was until recently, when we used to have shops in the UK, there was one called Dorothy Perkins that sold ladies' wear. Did you go through did you go through the window? No, what oh. it was like marble fascia down each side of the window and I missed the window and I hit the marble fascia and smashed all the marble off the front of the shop. Oh dear. I broke my arm. Oh! And, and my German helmet come off, but luckily enough, I didn't bang my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I did, anyway. I might have banged it lightly. <laughs> uh, isn't it weird looking back and seeing bikers from that era, British bikers yeah. from that era, yeah. covered in, like, yeah. iron crosses and swastikas? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, here's, here's the thing. I think a, a, young, a younger... Um, audience or person or group of people looking back at those pictures and go, look at those racist nuts. And it's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. It's nothing to do no. with that. All it nothing. is, all it is, is an attempt to shock the older yeah. generation. And a sign of rebellion. Yeah, that's all it is. It's yeah. nothing to do with the Nazi party, with Hitler, no. with racism. It's nothing to do with that. No. It's just a middle finger to the older generation. The same, the same way as, like, greasy, flared biker boots, steel toe yeah. caps, Doc yeah. Martens if you were a skinhead. It's, yeah. it's the same. It's a young person's way of, yeah. of raising a big, rigid middle finger to the <laughs> older generation. That's, that's all it was. So if people look back at those photos and go... Were these people all like Nazis and racists? No, it was no. just they were just out to shock, and it worked a lot of the time, yeah. didn't it? It did. I mean, I, I put myself at that age as you know, more of a hippie, really, and you know, more, more sort of love and peace and that sort of thing, really. So, this triumph was it? Was it completely no. destroyed, or was this no. was this the start no. of you thinking? That, that was, was this the start. start of you thinking? Yeah. Right, it's time to rebuild this bike, but no. I'm not going to rebuild it like Triumph did. No, because the front of the frame was bent. That was an opportunity to then rake the forks and put about another 10 inches of length on the fork. Oh, how did hold on. Forks. Hold on, can I ask how you did that? Well, the, the, the frame, literally, I, I was because when I was, you know, I was 16, and, I, and I, I went out and bought myself a, an arc welder <laughs> on HP. <laughs> and um, Where did you yeah, get it from? 
Because that, sort of that sort of thing wasn't readily available on the high street. Well, there was this man that used to come round, because a lot of my mates did banger racing, and I did that as well when I was 16. Yeah, I did a bit of banger racing myself, uh, Three Litre Unlimited. I used to, what we used to do uh, was we'd just, um, we'd just rent this car. There was a guy called Deadly. And somebody right. said to me, like I recommended him a, co- a couple of times, and they'd say, they'd say, what's he called, this guy? And I'd go, Deadly. They go, no, what's his real name? I go, I don't know what his real name is. He builds cages for bangers. I, th- I said, I, I, no. You know, it's not, excuse me, could you give me your full name? Yes, my name is Desmond Smythe. It's like, he's called Dead. I said, everyone knows him. Just ask. But it was funny, I got him to put a cage in a car that, uh, a track car that I had, a Lancia. And um, it came back and he'd done a lovely job. Because it was, it was quite an unusual car, this Lancia, so there wasn't, like, an OMP cage or whatever that you could just buy. Yeah. So I thought, I know, I'll get Deadly to put one in it. So who I'd known, this was from years ago, so I rang him, I said, uh, just rang the number, hey, Deadly, Steve, back. oh, hello, mate. Because I just used to rent a three-litre off him for 500 quid for a meeting, me and my mate had split it, and whatever happened, he'd wear it, right? Yeah. So, you know, we'd just go, pay him, race, He'd take away what was left, and then when we fancied it again, we'd call him and he'd do the same thing. But he put the cage in the Lancia, and this was a total banger story because the Lancia came back and I called him and I said, uh, um, mate, the car. And he went, yeah, do you not like the cage? I went, the cage is good, like that. And he said, what's the, what's the problem, Steve? I said, dude, you fucked the seats up. There's fucking big, there's big weld holes in the seats. And he was like... Yeah, so what? Because obviously in that world, who gives a fuck what yeah. happens to the seat? But this was a classic Lancia track car, and he'd just been, like, doing the top tubes and just, like, stuff's coming down. And I had these... I, I, I'm trying to remember what make they were. I think they were Sparco. I had okay. these mega FIM Sparco, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Full of fucking holes. I was like, dude. <laughs> it's like, But then I thought, that's when two cultures collide, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Racing, as long as it was sort of done and done quick, that was it. So, what were the the weapons of? We'll do this again. So, what were the weapons of choice when you took to the track back then? Yeah, well, like I said, the first first one I had was an old Ford Pop, the the roundy shaped one, not the shut up and big one. And the second one was a, um, uh, oh, what's it? I've forgotten now. I bet it was like. An Austin Cambridge or a Morris 8 or something like that, wasn't it? Like a standard Vanguard. A standard Vanguard. Standard Ensign. Right, right. Yeah, Um, quite a rare car. I mean, I don't think I've seen one at a classic car show ever since then. Yeah, that's because of people like you, Yobos. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny when you see people on on social media. If somebody puts up a picture of classic banger racing, all these, like, keyboard warriors get on the bottom going, Oh, these people are terrible. They should be lined up and shot and all this thing. And you think, look, mate, right? If it wasn't for... You see your piece of sort of mediocre British motoring gruel from the 1950s or early 60s, that would be worth a fraction of what people are currently prepared to pay for it if everyone had carefully preserved all the old standard vanguards and Austin Cambridges and all that other stuff. Austin Cambridges and Zephyrs, everybody had them, and that's what you wanted. They were the ideal. Yeah, and here was the thing. As As you know, back then... If a car was kept in the UK for a number of years, yeah. pre-galvanised chassis, yep. <laughs> it was as <laughs> rust, uh, run no, as a bear. Yeah. There was no way it was going back. The best thing for it was to go out Viking style, yeah. in flames in front of a cheering crowd. Definitely. 
Well, well what's better than being caught up in the scrapyard with a gas axe? Yeah. I mean, one, the, the last car we raced was a Mercedes 220S thing. I mean, oh, Nate, hold on a minute. It's worth a fortune now, but... <laughs> a fintail. A fin- and we wrecked it. A 220S, a fintail Merc. You use... Oh, you that's... Yeah. Yeah, totally, I've changed my mind about you. as well. How did you get one of those? Because even at the, t- at the time, it would have been a valuable car, surely. It, well, it wasn't. It, it was it just gone rusty. It belonged to our headmaster. I remember all the time I was at secondary school, he used to have it, and it was always blue paint, already faded, and all the interior was all sort of faded. And then by the time we left school, he had traded it in at a local garage, and one of my mates worked as a apprentice mechanic at the garage and he see it come in and they they done a sort of part x on it but it was it just sat on the roof of this garage for well oh, about a year and then as like a sort of they, advertising they, they, just to draw people's attention was it well, up there nobody even wanted it it just sat right. there and and we i think we paid about 20 quid for it <laughs> wow <laughs> but it's like tra- the Triumph Thunderbird I was talking about earlier. I, I remember I only paid twenty pounds for that, and I mean, sixty sixty cigarettes for a Vespa one fifty. Yeah. <laughs> which now, if you looked, it was probably a GS. If you looked on, if you looked on eBay right now, or looked anywhere, that that yeah. sixty cigs would be like seven or eight thousand pounds. Yeah, and that fintail. Well, old scooter now, he's worth loads of money, isn't it? So what was the... Uh, yeah, but yeah, and, and that's good and bad, but let's not get hung up on that. <laughs> what would have been the sort of um, spec that you would have been racing on that Merc? Just back then, let us know what the format of the race was and how you would prepare a car like that Mercedes to race there. Well, again, in them days, there was no classes. It was just banger racing. And, it, and you, had, you had little small 100Es racing with... I remember the biggest car in there was an old Daimler Hearst. And mate, it got a bit of railway iron down each side of the car. It must have weighed about five tonnes. Good God. And, uh, and then you had Anglias and stuff like that, all racing in the same class. And you could put as much metal um, down the side of the car as you wanted, but you're only allowed to have two bars going across and four going down on the front and back. And how much fuel would you want to carry... You wouldn't use the, the fuel yeah, tank, would you? Little motorbike petrol tanks most yeah. people used, and just that was just strapped to the roll cage in the back of the, you know, where the back seat should be. Special seat? No, no, standard car seat, and just a full harness, old cheap, um, really cheap little, cheap and nasty harnesses we used to use. And there was no, when it comes to scrutineering, as long as you had a crash helmet, there, there was none of this sort of looking at, to see if it's in a, in date and stuff like that. Yeah, and overalls were. Overalls, weren't they? They weren't like Nomex no. racing suits. The overalls were. I remember wearing. I, I had a sort of a because I was you know into my bikes and that, and I had me cut off then and with all the badges on it. I used to wear that. Did you not wear the? It would have been even better if you wore the German helmet. That would have been awesome. <laughs> they did. They draw the line there. <laughs> in a Mercedes, can you imagine? In a Mercedes, like in a part of 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 England that the Luftwaffe bomb tried to bomb back to the Stone Age, and you're there in a Mercedes lining up. I would imagine it was a pretty potent machine on the on the oval. That Merc. Absolutely fast, and I, I went out in one race and I won it easy. And the second race I went out in it, and all of a sudden, because we just all we did with the exhaust, it was it was straight six. We had two twin choke Webers on it, and then it had two exhausts that come out underneath that um, we just turned up and stuck them out through the bonnet. The trouble is they were dead in line with the driver. 
and all of a sudden I'm driving along, and all of a sudden I was covered in black engine oil, and it had punched, it had burnt a hole in one of the cylinders, one of the pistons, and was all the oil was coming out the exhaust, and I was covered in it. <laughs> <laughs> so when you got to, when, to a hole, <laughs> did, did, oh, you didn't finish. I was no, going to say when you no, finished it, would it, have been... it, it. Like I say, so we done, we done about two races with it, and it was scrap. <laughs> I did the I, I did the London to Brighton uh, Pioneer run for bikes. And I did it on a, a 1911 Matchless, which was the superbike of the pre-Great War era. Yeah, I mean, this thing, this thing was like, I think, a two-speed and a, a leather belt drive to the rear... Not, not a chain, leather belt drive to the rear wheel. But on the board tracks, this, thing's a get, this thing could get up to 70 miles an hour. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a proper thing. No brakes or suspension to speak uh, of, really, yeah. but... The, the bloke that had let me ride it said to me, right, Steve, I cannot impress on you enough how important it is to maintain all pressure. Total loss lubrication, obviously. But he said, if you're going to be going down the A23, which we were, he said, um, you must pump the oil. You must circulate oil. And obviously, there's a little, there's a little hand pump strapped to the flat tank. Yeah. So I'm thinking, right, OK. So we were filming this. And I did experience some mechanical encumbrance on the way down. And I knew that the camera crew were waiting for me on, the br- on a bridge on the A23 on the way down to Brighton. So I wanted to get a nice, impressive shot of me going at a fair old speed down there. Yeah, yeah. And um, amongst the problems that I had was that I lost, I burst the oil line because I, pu- I was too zealous with the pumping. Yeah, because I, I over-pressurised it and blew the line. So I managed to get it back together, but I had to borrow a screw from the number plate. I found that, like, on a lot of old British bikes, uh, there's, like, two or three screw sizes on the whole motorcycle. So the, right. one, the one that held the number plates on was exactly the same size as the one that held the fuel line down to the tank, screwed into the tank. So uh, Sorry, the oil line. So I managed to get it in and get it down. And I get on the A23, I'm overtaking everybody on a 1911 motorbike. It's probably only doing about 60, 65. But I, I saw them on the bridge and they were waving to me. And I went past them at a right old rate, probably very unwise, a, a right old rate on a 100-year-old bike. Then I got into Brighton and there's a big crowd there on Madeira Drive. And I didn't realise that when the, like yourself, when the, when the oil line had separated, it had sprayed me with oil. Like yeah. you know, because you're thinking you've got other things on your mind, you don't really think of that. Uh, so I got to the I got to the finish line, and there was a bloke there with a microphone, and he went, "Oh, look who it is, everybody! It's Steve Berry on the matchless days of me." And I put my goggles up, and he went, "Big old flies undone." <laughs> you know what I, mean? I went, "What?" And somebody took a picture, and I saw the picture, and I went, "Oh yeah, Biggles," because obviously it was like it was the. Um, it was the oil that they used to lubricate the machine gun that the fighter oh, pilots yeah. used to get sprayed with, wasn't it? Yeah. And and so you must when you finished that race, you must have looked you must look like Biggles. And uh, and it was them old Mark Nine goggles with the glass <laughs> as well, you know. And you, after you put them up, you said two white discs <laughs> and black. Gary, I can't impress on on people enough if they haven't done it because we both done it. You've done it more than yeah. me. I've only done a bit of it, but. How much fun banger racing is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It, I mean, especially sort of doing it at that age as well. It really did sort of install um, uh, a thing in me where you know you, you, I wanted to sort of fabricate and fix and uh, 
you know, it just gets you going into that sort of thing. I think they should encourage more youngsters to, to do stuff like that, really. Well, do you know what? There's going to be an awful lot of internal combustion cars left over, surplus to requirements, well, in, yeah. in the coming years. Yeah. And I can't think of anything better than saying to these kids... Right, instead of whatever terrible social ills we're currently beset by, and, and yep. I, I don't think there's any difference between now and... You know, if you look back in history, it was mods and rockers fighting on the beaches, right. it was the Razor gangs in Glasgow or the Scuttlers here in Manchester. There's always... Young men will always get into trouble of some description. Yeah. If you want yeah. to keep them out of trouble, just give them these old cars and go, yeah, go and smash those... We don't need these cars anymore. Yeah. <laughs> go and smash them up over there. <laughs> Try not to make too much noise. Because, I mean... You know, how all kinds of motor racing involve quite a bit of fun, but an enormous amount of hanging around waiting for something to happen. For me, banger racing, like I said, we used to pay this guy to bring a car up for us. We used to split the car. He charges 500 quid for the whole thing. He'd just turn up, drop the car off the back of a high abbey, off the back of a, a wagon. We'd get in it. The two of us would take turns to race it. And at the end of the night, he would load the wreckage <laughs> onto the back. And that was the deal. And I thought, this is perfect. We found a form of motorsport where we've got all of the all of the waiting and all of the hanging around out of the way. And it's just fun. We turn up and we start having fun straight away. Yeah. I also, also got into um, like the off-road racing with the all-wheel drive club where you had to build a vehicle yourself because there was nothing really you could... Yeah, you, know, you could sort of buy off a shelf that would that would well help you win anyway. Right. So, wait, where's that come from, Gary? Has that come from? Because I've done trials, car yeah. trials back in the day. So, did yeah, it did it come from club. that? So the All Drive Club is probably the biggest club in the country. Right. And in the, back in the day when I did it, they used to do a thing called competitive safaris. Then they also did trials as well, where you just you know like Land Rovers, Range Rovers, yeah. and you were just like motorcycle trials, trying to creep through a, a, a course, you know, with, with gates that you went through and the further you got through without getting stuck. Yeah. Uh, you know, you won. But the competitive safaris were done like a rally and the best, probably some of the best sites were like Salisbury Plain. We used to mark out a course, maybe 10 miles, and then we'd do it maybe eight to 10 times. So people would think, I think, Gary, oh, well, why wouldn't you use a rally car? But this is... More extreme terrain, isn't it? Yeah. You need, yeah, you need something with sort of. I mean, it's the English equivalent of. Uh, I always used to watch bits of film of the Bar Half Hours and, and oh, yeah. the Dakar and stuff like that. You know, so it was like a poor man's version of that, basically. James Garner made a great film about that, and I think he had. I'm trying to remember the car that that he raced in it. He had a. He was it a Plymouth? Had a beach buggy looking thing that had a Porsche flat six. Oh. Man alive! And he, I remember he raced it in the in Baja. Yeah, really so nice. You look, you looked at but you looked at Baja. You looked at these glamorous suntan Californians. Yeah, racing racing across, kicking up a rooster tail of sand as they race past Joshua yeah. trees and cactuses in the desert. And then you thought, right, we'll do that <laughs> on Salisbury Plain. Yeah. <laughs> like the last car was a single seater, and it looked like that one of them them Tamiya. Radio control kits, you know, single seat with big long gangly arms. Had about sort of fifteen inches of wheel travel and a and a super a turbocharged beetle engine in the back. Wow! 
and that that was the most fun I've ever had in, in any motorsport whatsoever. <laughs> Other than lawnmower racing, which I did as well for a Really? Time. Did yeah, you? I was world champion as well. Were you were the world champion lawnmower racer? Yeah. <laughs> How fantastic. I what year it was. Um, well, it must have been, must be going back about eight years ago now. But, uh, yeah, I'd, uh, that's, uh, have you ever seen that, the lawnmower racing? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think about a go at it. Uh, I've had to go at quite a lot of things. Hovercraft racing, that was terrible. Uh, yeah, they are very, very, very difficult to control, hovercraft. I can imagine. That they obviously just don't turn when you turn the... No. Yeah, the yeah, there's, there's, it's, there's as much planning involved in, in, in hovercraft yeah. racing as, as there is in, like, a sort of a family caravanning holiday. You've got to think ahead all yeah. the time. You've got to think, right, in a few minutes when I get to over there, I'm going to want to be going right, so I better, I better start now, you know. Yeah. Your brother was thinking, of, well, he started building one, but he never finished it, sadly enough. And I did sort of follow it for a little while, just watching, you know, but I never, yeah, I never, never did take the plunge. It's funny, I think there's, there's only us... Oh, I was going to say there's only us. I think the Americans might rival us. When yeah. I say us, I mean the Brits, yeah. for looking at unsuitable machinery and going, let's race. Yeah. You know, like, like lawnmowers and stuff like that. Yeah, when the lawnmowers, that, that, the last one I built, I remember it being clocked with a speed gun. It does 60 mile an hour. Oh. And <laughs> you, really had to, you had to ride it like a quad, really. You know, you had to sort of, in corners, you'd get it up on two wheels and you'd get it drifting and you're on two wheels and drifting. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good thing. Really speed's, good. Re- speed's relative. We're, we're always talking about that on this show because, you know, figures will be quoted and somebody will say, oh, 100 miles an hour. And, and I'm sure some people, not people who listen to this show because it's like an enthusiast thing. You have to be into it to listen to this nonsense. Yeah. But, um, and so you know, you know that. I mean, right, I'll give you an example. Back to London to Brighton. I'm doing London to Brighton in an 1897 Leon Bollet tricar with Doug wow. Hill from the National Motor Museum, and wow. we get to Pikeham Hill. Are you familiar with Pikeham on that on that route? Yeah, I've I've done I've done it I've done it in a Morris van in the commercial um, rally. But right, I can't, I can't remember. Part so of the... it's a big steep hill, yeah. and basically in a in a 19th century vehicle, which we were. There's very limited ability to turn or stop, right. <laughs> right? And it's not that fast from the the power that's generated from the engine. You uh, realise that you realise how little power those engines are generating when they're measured in quarter horsepower. When uh, people quote and they go, "Oh, it's two and three quarter that one," and you think, "Wow!" When you get down to quarter horsepower, you realise there's not much go. But there's this thing called gravity, and it doesn't matter how old something is. Once it gets rattling along with gravity, it starts yeah. to really shift. And Doug said to me, who's, you know, Doug's one of the most experienced people in Britain, in the world, when it comes to this sort of thing, because, you know, he's been there forever at Bewley at the National Motor Museum. Right. And he said to me, Steve, if this thing gets out of shape, jump off. He said, if I say, <laughs> honestly, he says to me, if I say jump, you better jump. I said, mate... You'll, you won't get to the U. As soon as you start with the J, I'll be history. It'll be like, where's Steve gone? Juck gone. Because <laughs> I thought, he's right. If this thing gets out of control going down this hill, there's, there's nothing for it. And it's, it's funny to me how people will look at old cars and old bikes, include, especially the veterans, and go, oh, look at that, isn't it cute? You know, as though it's like some... 
some sort of like sedate pipe and slippers activity for people that are sort of giving up on going fast. And I feel like saying, you getting a 1910 Benz doing 60 miles an hour feels like you're about to take off. <laughs> it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And, and again, it, you know, you don't have to go fast to, to, to be scared even, do well, you? Well, if you're doing 60 on a lawnmower, I would imagine it feels like the end of the world. Well, it does. And, and the thing is, because it's so small and quite often with these races, you're like shoulder to shoulder, you know, you're nudging each other and that. And again, if you clip, if you rub two wheels together... They just throw themselves up in the air, you know, and you're, you're off it. Did you lot do a 24-hour race? I, yeah, I never did do that. Oh. I've always had back trouble, and the Lord oh, right. finished that, it off, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't do that 24-hour race. I think that slamming the Triumph and Sidecar into Dorothy Perkins' That's marble shop front, yeah. banger racing in a, in a Mercedes right. 220. And the off-road racing as well, that don't really finish me back oh. off. Sort of the time you spent more time with all four wheels in the air than you did with them on the ground. You know so, I mean? Gary, is that is that why that off-road racing scene that you're talking about is that yeah. how we end up with people like Bowler and Twisted? Is that yeah. where they came Bowler, from? Bowler was racing. He was racing. A, Sorry, a, I'm, I'm ignorant. Land Rover, and I was racing the club. Right. Yeah. Because you think he went, on, he went on to do bigger and better things. Yeah. Because yeah. you think where did those where yeah. did that Ability. Where did that? Where did that level of development come from? Yeah, and yeah. you know, you kind of think yeah. it must have been through motorsport. But well, I, all through. Um, well, that, again, he, he, used to, he used to race in the all-wheel drive club, and then he, as he got bigger and better, and then he was building cars for other people, and then they, they them cars, bowler cars in the Dakar. That makes up a big part of the you know the entrance. Actually, There's, do you know Bert Bullock? Who? Bert Bullock in the, the off uh, the off I've heard the name. He's yeah. a mate of mine, and I, I, I worked on a TV show with him, and he, he was showing me the cars that he'd raced and that he's, he'd built, and, you know, I, I'm going to ask you about it. And w- it didn't shock me because, you know, I know I know how much things cost, but I was shocked. No, I say it did shock me. I won't say it didn't shock me. It did shock me. Just the expense of, of building these cars because, well, yeah. obviously, you start off and you think... Let, let's have a bit of fun off-road with these sort of knackered old four-wheel drives or whatever. Yeah. And then 10 years down the line, you go, here's the budget for this year's racing. And you go, oh, you see the figure at the bottom and you're like, oh. Because yeah. people inevitably want to go faster. People are yeah. competitive by its human nature. You can't stop it. And all of a sudden, something that was a bit of fun turns out to cost, like, massive amounts of money. Well, it, yeah. I mean, when I first started it, it was cheap anyway, and I, and I was in a two-wheel class. And right, two- so that's two-wheel drive rather than a two-wheel... Yeah, yeah. A two-wheel drive class was cheap. It was nearly all Volkswagen Beetle class. Hold know, on, and let it. me ask you something. What, what, which ask, axle is best to be driven, the front or the back? The, the back, definitely. Um, right. And especially if you've got the engine over the wheels as right. well. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the front-wheel drive with the engine over the wheels is, is all right. You know, it's not bad. So hold on, hold on. You get Volkswagen Beetle with no. engine in the back. Yeah. Back-wheel drive. They, they can, I mean, I, I did do trials in my off-road car as well. And, well and hold, hold on a second. Why then are front-wheel drive cars better in the snow than rear-wheel drive cars? Uh, because the end, because most of them have got the engine in the front, haven't they? And then the, the, they're driving the back wheels, so all the weight's on the front wheels, but the drive wheels are just skipping away on the ice. Do you know what? You're right, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? It's the, yeah, it's the axle that, 
The, you if the, dry, if the engines... I've driven a Beetle in the snow. They're awesome. Well, we were talking about that. Literally the other night, we were saying, what's the best car commercial? Because I'd seen the, the advert for the Polestar. There's an advert at the moment for the Polestar, and it's an amazing commercial. Yeah. And so it started a conversation amongst us, what's the best car advert? And I said, well, there's, there was one for the Citroën DS, which was amazing. It looks like a sort of avant... It's an, very French. It looks like a sort of avant-garde film piece made by Louis Bunel or something. like. And it's an advert for a Citroën. But yeah. the best one is... What does the snowplow driver drive to work with the Beetle? And, yeah. and it, you get right to the end yeah. of the commercial, and there's the Beetle, and then he slithers off home and his Beetle down this incredibly <laughs> snowy <laughs> track. And you think, yeah, they are. I had a Citroen Ami, which was like the Posh 2 CV, and that yeah. was amazing in snow. It was. Yeah. It, Again, all the weights on the nose, isn't it? And the, and the, and the drive wheels. Yeah. And, and I did, there was someone that actually raced one in the All Drive Club, and all he did was. From the um, what two CV? Yeah, to, from the door pillar, the, the rear door pillar. He cut the body completely off, so all that stuck out the back was the floor pan with the two. They have like two big swinging arms with the wheels on. <laughs> well, that was um, there was a Bond film, wasn't there? Which one was it? Where the Citroen gets cut, cut in half and he just carries... Yeah, and they drag off in it. <laughs> Hold on, was it a Bond film or was it the Pink Panther? It might... Right, OK, all right, before I got bombarded with texts and messages, it might have been, and I think it was, a Pink Panther movie where the Citroen gets cut in half and he carries yeah. it. He carries yeah. it. But it might have been both. Who, who knows? But So, yeah. you do... Did you... You've, you've taken part in so many different areas of motorsport, and I... I've kind of done that myself where I've had a, a real passion and then I've done a few years and then I thought, right, I've done that. Yeah. And then you think, life is short, let's do something else. Yeah. Whereas yeah. whereas some people are able to stick at us. Or forever. Yeah, yeah forever. I, I can't really do that. I'm too much of a flippage bit. I think, oh, right. look, at that, look at that thing that's over there that's interesting. Let's go over there. Let's try a bit of drag racing. Let's try a bit of grass tracking. Let's try trials. Let's try this. So you've done the lawnmowers. You've done the bangers. You've done the off-road club. What else? Um, I, uh, what else have I done? I've done, uh, done like, used to do on my, on my bike. In fact, I met you. You actually gave me a trophy at a... Um, a mag, um, oh. you know, the MAG bike uh, club. Yeah. You, you, were, you were giving trophies. How many years ago? How many years ago was that, Jill? Don't say that. It ages both of us. <laughs> 30, 30 years ago, you gave me a trophy. 20-something <laughs> yeah, years ago, All right, you gave all me right. a trophy for best, best bike in the show. Right. And it was, it was a Honda thing with all smooth bodywork all over it and right. it had got um uh yeah the honda cbr thousand got a big knotted exhaust on the front and all looked a bit like the back bike in that and it was in that funny paint that flip paint that changed oh wow color. yeah i don't know if you remember it no i don't <laughs> what i should say then is oh yeah the one that was <laughs> the one that looked like the back bike and it had the flip paint i thought it was going to be the notorious incident which i still I still get people saying this to me. I was giving out, I was commentating and giving out the awards at, it was one of the big 
was it the Rock and Blues? It was the Rock and Blues. It was right. one of the big right. bike shows in the UK, like 20, 25,000 people attending. Yeah. Huge show. And a, the custom show was a big part of it. And if you built custom bikes, it was one of the shows that you wanted to win. And yeah. what this bike had won, and what they were doing was they were getting people to ride up to the stage and, like, onto a dais and then, you know, a podium, rather, and yeah. then off the other side, they got the trophy, photograph, all that sort of stuff. You know, good professionals. And I'm there, stood to the side with a, with a microphone. So this has got to be 25 years ago. I see a bike that's one, like, best paint or something like that coming through the crowd. It's, um, I can see it's a complete one-off, one-off frame, crazy extended forks, you know, mad paintwork, big fat back wheel, all that. And the engine, I can see... I can see a three or four cylinder inline engine and shaft drive to the rear wheel. And so I said, it's not often you see a BMW uh, take any sort of award in a show like this. (laughs) 25 years later, I'm in a pub and somebody says, "Uh, you're him, aren't you? Like that, and they go, yeah, yeah. The guy who thinks a Goldwing's a BMW. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. (laughs) It's like, I mean, how... It's shaft drive. It's a horizontally inline engine. I could only... I feel like grabbing them and going, do you realise how hard it is to tell the difference between from 100 yards away, a Goldwing engine and a BMW K-Series engine in a one-off frame with a bike that's completely yeah. scratch-built? But, but But blokes are like that, aren't they? You know yeah. what I mean? They love to catch you out. They love to trip you up. And it's, I know it's not, it's not necessarily malicious, but, no. you know, you just think... I'm never going to get away from that. Yeah. I did quite a few um, bikes, custom bikes, for quite a few years. I did that particular bike. Also, did a trailer for one wheel trailer for it in the bodywork. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It was similar on the trailer to the bike. Whoa. A one wheel trailer. So, yeah. are we back to the Vespa type um, arrangement? How, do, how, do, how yeah. did a one wheel trailer work? Well, what it, I just the coupling between the trailer and the bike was, in fact, a, just a prop shaft UJ, Universal Joint. Right. So as the bike sort of laid over and that, obviously the trailer... The just... trailer did the same thing. Yeah. Has, has, has something like that ever been commercially available? Does somebody make some like a tilting um, trailer? In the States, there's a guy there's a guy that does. I mean, there was one guy that started to do it over here, but then he sort of he publicised the company quite a bit, but then it never... I don't think it ever came to anything. I think trying to convince people that they need a one-wheel trailer... People just won't. They look at it and, no, that can't work. I was watching an old documentary. Somebody sent me a link to it. And it was, although first mentioned on YouTube. We always mention YouTube because there's so much interest in old stuff on there. And uh, somebody sent me a link to it. And it was this bloke. And it was kind of, what it was, was it was was a documentary about a father and son where the son had had this terrible motorbike accident. And the father had got him into biking. And he sort of felt guilty because he got his son into biking. Then his son had had this terrible accident. But he built another bike for his son, and they were going to go on this journey together. And I thought, this is great. I, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things that I always talk about, which is that people say, what's your show about? And I go, it's about people. They say, oh, I thought it was about, like, machines and bikes and cars. I said, no, it's about people. There are machines, but really it's about people. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is the same thing. It's about these people. And the, the father was going on about how biking, how unique motorcycling is, how you get, you know, it's like, flying on the ground and you get this sense this great sense of freedom and it yeah. ca- you can't get it anywhere else maybe on a horse you know that sort of thing it was yeah. all very romantic and very evocative so they're going off on this journey and he's got this big touring bike not a harley but a japanese version of and as before they're setting off he then wheels up this giant trailer <laughs> like a 
caravan and attaches it and sets off down the road. And I thought, mate, that ain't my idea of freedom. It was that like a thing. Like being a car, might Bloody yeah. great big thing. I think yeah. it was. I think it was something that you were meant to actually spend the night in. And I thought, right, <laughs> the last thing that I want. I mean, you know, I, the last thing I want. I mean, I, when I look at a motorcycle, I, I struggle with luggage as well. I think, oh, I don't yeah. like all that luggage. When I used to go away for the week, I don't know how I'd do it now, but back in the day when I used to go around and do a lot of rallies, I was notorious because I'd just turn up literally. I'd literally turn up with a credit card, a toothbrush, and 20 quid in my sock yeah, yeah. in case of emergencies. And I'd just sleep in, you know, because I thought, I don't want to be taking all this stuff on. Every time I put... You know, I'd spent, like you, we were talking earlier about drilling holes in things and cutting metal off with a hacksaw. The last thing I want to do is then pile on pounds and pounds and pounds of weight onto a motorbike. I just want to get it all off. Get all that off. You know, there are these things called hotels. When we get to where we're doing, we'll either sleep underneath a trailer if we if we can't make it to town, or we'll get a B&B. I'm not going to put £100 of weight or whatever it is on the back of my motorbike. Unless, you know, I'm sleeping with it. Well, hey, that was, I, I just thought of that one. I, we'll probably edit that out because that was that was the sort of off-colour joke that the listeners of this show <laughs> come not to expect. But there you go. Sometimes you can't help yourself. So I mean, when, it, you were, when you were building custom bikes, what, what, who were you influenced by or who were you trying to emulate or better when you... Um, like I said, cause, uh, my first custom bike was when I was 16. So obviously that, was, that came from Easy Rider. Um, you know, just once I'd seen that film, that was it. I wanted to be riding across the desert on a Harley with long forks. Um, but instead, you were riding through Bishop Storford. Dorothy Perkins' front window on the Triumph Thunderbird. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, and I had, a, had an old Matulus as well at that time with, with uh, Matulus 350 with um, eight hangers on it. That I used to ride on on L plates. You would you could have a two fifty cc bike mm. in them days. That this, kind of if you've got the whole sort of you know freewheeling easy rider biker look down, yeah. Then the addition of L plates does t- t- tend to take the shine off the apple it, somewhat, it, doesn't it? it <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I say in them days, it was, should have been two fifty, but somebody put it, this three fifty in the logbook as a, uh-huh. a two fifty. So I still had it on the road. And then the three fifty mattress, you can actually put a five hundred cc barrel on it. So I wow. did that. So I was riding the five hundred cc mattress on on L plates. <laughs> Do you remember when when they brought in the two? Well, when they brought in the two fifty law, and and some. You'd see adverts in the motorcycling press. I know somebody who actually had one of these, where they blank off a cylinder on a motorbike so that you could legally ride it. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, again, they did it later on with the 400cc limit, didn't they, as well? And people used to, they used to put restrictors on the carburetors. Do you know what they're doing, Gary? It's dead simple, right? If anybody wonders why the law with regard to vehicles, and to mo- particularly to motorcycle, keeps changing, they want to stop us from riding them. Probably. Yeah, no, they do. It's it always just... has seemed that way all the way all the way through it, yeah. Well, it, right, do you want me to absolutely lay it on the line and tell you what's going on? Go on, then. As a motorcyclist, you are 37 times more likely to be killed or se- seriously injured than a car driver. <laughs> and the average cost to the state, this is a bit horrible and not generally the sort of stuff we talk about, but nobody else talks about it, so why not? The cost to the state, the British state of a road fatality 
is between one and one and a half million pounds. Yeah. Right? So do the math, as our North American friends would say. They look at motorcycling as a risky activity. They don't really see any need for it anymore. It's almost a throwback to 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 a previous age and a previous generation. And they'd ideally like to get rid of us. Think about, like, I, I come into Manchester City Centre now on a motorcycle. Where do I park? There's virtually zero provision for motorcycle parking. And God forbid that you should just park it, you know, on the pavement or whatever. You will get a parking ticket. Yeah. I mean, you could, if you wanted to, attach your number plate with Velcro. I'm not saying that I do that, although I do. <laughs> And take it with. It's amazing how Velcro will hold a number plate on. Oh, yeah. Even at speed. <laughs> Remarkable stuff. And of course, if you take it with you, unless the. I shouldn't really be advocating this, but what I am advocating is that if you want to reduce congestion in city centres, provide parking for powered two wheelers. Instead of just trying to grab money off every single space by yeah. parking cars there, uh, here in the city centre, four and a half quid an hour or whatever they want for it. Provide some parking, more provision for power two-wheelers, and then people wouldn't have to bring in a car, which is six, seven, eight, nine, ten times as big as the motorcycle or scooter that somebody could be riding. Although our climate doesn't really help, does it? It doesn't, no. I mean, I don't. Nowadays, I don't ride in the in the winter at all. But we did. Got my bike all registered. Hold on. Yeah, well, I used to use it for work and back all the time. We totally did. We just You just used to go in and people, yeah. for a joke, would yeah. brush the snow off you, wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, they'd yeah. come up to you and brush the snow. So you you were riding along and you'd if you were on a straight road, you'd literally get covered in snow. <laughs> but nobody, nobody thought that that was crazy. Or it was just because they realised that a lot of young men, particularly young men, some young women, but mainly young men, who had a motorbike or a scooter, yeah. they didn't have an alternative. The only way they were going to get to work or education or wherever they were going was on that machine. It wasn't a toy. It, yeah. Well, it was a toy, but it was also a tool. It was a necessary tool. They yeah. had no other way of getting about, about to where they went. And so if it was raining, snowing, icy, whatever... Well, you had a choice, either stay at home and, you know, and not do anything or, you know, put some put some tights on, put your mum's tights on underneath your jeans <laughs> and then get your mum's, oh, this is terribly sexist, get your mum's marigold gloves, <laughs> rubber gloves for washing up on underneath your own gloves, which probably weren't that waterproof, and off you go. <laughs> or putting carrier bags, plastic carrier bags, inside your leather, the front of your leather jacket... Because again, it wasn't it wasn't very waterproof. Yeah, or dress up in a bin bag and then tape it up around your neck. I've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we here's the thing: we look back at it with rose tinted spectacles. Yeah. But um, if we're honest, it wasn't that great, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, well, I say it wasn't fun looking at it from now, but I can remember enjoying it back then. <laughs> Do you remember when, like, roughy tufty bikers that you knew? Yeah, would yeah. would resort to a reliance in the winter. Yeah. I knew one guy who was a really big, scary dude. You really wouldn't have wanted, wanted to get on the wrong side of him. <laughs> and um, he turned up in this reliant, which was what, you know, you knew, like people say, oh, uh, the first cuckoo of summer or whatever, or, you know, the first thing that you spot that indicates the changing of the seasons. Well, for me, the onset of winter was seeing him in a reliant robin. 
instead of on his chopper or whatever yeah. it was. But war beside yeah. anyone who made... I, yeah. I, no one was making fun of this guy. You know, I mean, it did to a degree look a bit unusual, I have to say. But yeah. when he got out of it, if you thought of mocking him, he then got out of it and you thought, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> if that guy wants to drink, cause he, it's like a, he was like the mountain of Game of Thrones, like 6'5", <laughs> You know, just a big, bearded, scary, Viking-looking guy. But seeing him unfolding himself out of this reliant regal or whatever it was, and you just thought, wow. Because, of course, you didn't need a, you didn't need a, uh, a car licence for a, a three-wheeler, did you? And a bike licence, couldn't you? As long as you blocked out reverse gear, apparently. Really? Yeah, yeah. You were meant to, if you only had a bike licence, you had to block out reverse gear. Yeah, but hold on a minute. Some sidecar outfits had a reverse gear, didn't they? The BMW ones, you just had to sort of switch something over yeah. and you had as many speeds in reverse as you reverse. had going forward. Yeah. So yeah. With, the whole, with the whole custom bike thing, wh- where was that going? Because a lot of guys who got good at that, you know, whether you saw Chris Island or, uh, you know, Uncle bon John Reed or, or, you know, whoever it was, there, were, there was a proliferation of small custom bike builders and custom yeah. engineering shops. You only had to get a magazine like Airwall or BSH, yeah. and there were pages and pages of little adverts yeah. with usually like a one- or two-man operation yeah. doing some sort of specialist engineering. So was that where you were going with the custom bike building, well, or was, was it just fun? Yeah, I was working for Dax at the time. So, and I started right. off doing, just done a couple for myself. And yeah, I, hold on. So we sh- can you explain who Dax... Because I think at one point, Dax were the biggest um, kit car company in the UK, weren't they? Probably were, yeah. They probably were very close to it, I think, you know, behind companies like maybe Westfield. Um, but, yeah, we were, we were big, yeah. So how did you get involved with that? Well, again, a friend of mine um, that I worked with, uh, when, we had a, when I was 20, I had a custom car um, building job with a, a company called Street Rod Engineering. There's a friend of mine, Nick Vincent, he owned the company and I worked with him. And he went on to work, he worked at Dax as a laminator for a little while. And while he was there, he introduced me to um, the, the guy that owned it. And uh, I said to him, I could build you... He was hitting chassis for Cobras made out, outside, and I said, well, I could build you a better one than that and build mm-hmm. it in shop. Right. Uh, so he said, yeah, come on then, <laughs> and give me a job. And um, so, yeah, I ended up sort of just designing the first Cobra chassis they had. But then and did, also... you, did you base that on the AC chassis that was... The, no. Or did you... Because did you, did you, yeah. with the Dax ones, would they take... Any engine. I seem to remember that the Dax ones would often use a Jag engine. We, we used. We built a few with V12 Jag engines. Yeah. Uh, called Kearns Richards. who used to build Jag Jag engines for offshore power boats and um, big big power ones. Yeah, because a lot of people would think, how can you put a V12 in a Cobra replica? Yeah. It's, it's meant yeah. to have a V8. But you think, oh, yeah. yeah, well, okay, we've got this V12 here, yeah. which because the Jag or Daimler that it was in was as rotten as a pear has been thrown away. This impeccably maintained low-mileage V12 is available incredibly cheaply. We're going to use that. Yeah, I mean, they weren't massive power standards, but a lot of people think, you know, if they build it like that first, and then later on they could have one like our demonstrator that was 450 horsepower with all Weber carbs on it and dry sumps and everything else. But you take them for a ride in that and then say, well, you just buy a Jag and put that in and... 
Yeah. And it's done and it all sounds cheap. But it's not actually when you get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've bought the basic kit, that's just the start. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we sold hundreds of them. Really? Yeah. It was into hundreds and thousands of those Cobras. But the. the... I've been to uh, 3,000 cars in the time I, lit, in the time I um, worked there. In wow. And was was that all in the UK? Was the car only? Was no, it... they they went a lot of them went to uh, Europe. A few we've done a couple over to America. I remember some going down to South Africa. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the kits even in Europe now they they stem from Dax kits. You know, people have taken and splashed a mould off of the Dax body, and and when you look at the chassis, they all have similarities to the to the Dax chassis. Um, and and then the other Dax that I remember, we talked about sort of off-road buggies and stuff like that. It was yeah. it was was it kind of like that? Am I remembering right? Yeah, we did do one called the Nevada, which is one of those that I raced. <clears throat> that was a two-seater space frame car, and we were we were racing. Also, we were doing short circuit racing with that. With um, do you know Dave Fisher, Kingfisher Customs? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he specialised in, he still does, he built um, the um, beach buggies that were used on the Top Gear series. Uh, you know, with, um, what, what's that? Top uh, Gear? Not, I've never heard of it. <laughs> I can't believe it. We've got, <laughs> we've got 45 minutes into this chat. I've not even mentioned a BBC Two <laughs> motoring show, and you've brought it up. <laughs> well, you were on that once, haven't you? <laughs> I might have been on it for a few years back in the day, but it was it was it was so long ago. It had subtitles. It was you know it was the. I do remember the the, <laughs> the, the, the silent era of Top Gear. <laughs> probably probably should have been, but um, yeah, they, I mean yeah that that beach But then we also did we did a couple of other Volkswagen based kits that we we bought off of other people. What sort of person would build a Dax? Cobra or a so, Dax buggy. Go on. Normally, people of my sort of situation now, people that are retired, got a bit of money in the bank, and my sort of age group really actually was was the most common, um, you know, uh, customer. Uh, you got the odd young people that that, that did you know, build build them, but the majority of people were all sort of uh, well, fifty plus. Well, least. that's a reverse of the situation that existed at the start of that um, process because I think you can trace, I think, some some people don't agree with me, but I think you can trace kit cars back to the specials of the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, and yeah. the cars like a, a Falcon or a Rochdale or a Lotus, an, an early Lotus, yeah. where you would send off and you would buy an old Ford, side valve Ford, you'd send yep. off, the bits would arrive, the body, you know, whatever it was, and you would build a special out, yep. of, out of the car and the parts supplied by the companies I've just mentioned. Yeah. And Actually, Autos, I worked for when I was 16, they'd done a, you uh, used a, a Ford Pop and then chassis and then put a fibreglass body on it. But like you say, yeah, of that... Elk. Yeah, but that was young men, wasn't it? That was young men who couldn't afford a, well, that, a, yeah. a, a contemporary sports car. They couldn't afford an MG, a Triumph, a Jag, yeah. whatever, Austin Healey. And most of those were being sent to the States anyway, the yeah. export or die thing. Yeah. Whereas back here, there were no end of rotten old side valve Fords or, or Austins or whatever. 
and you could buy them for a couple of packs of cigs or, you know, the change that you could find in the lining of your sport sport jacket. And you could then get a fiberglass body uh, and a chassis and some suspension. Well, you could probably use the chassis from the old the old Ford because it was it was yeah. normally the body that wanted th- and the interior that wanted thrown away. But yeah. th- there were some really good looking specials from that era. I wrote the foreword for the book about the Rochdale, which was built up in this part of the world. And yeah. I think the was he called Richard Porter, the guy that I'm mixing him up with the guy who writes scripts of Top Gear. I might be. But the guy that designed the, the Rochdale GT and the Rochdale Olympic, if you'd said, if you squinted, it looked a bit like a Porsche or a Jag. You know, it was kind of, you, when you think of the materials that those guys were working with, yeah. they did manage to create something pretty damn cool. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Out, out, of, out of nothing, really, out of, out of scrap, out of stuff that people were throwing away. Whereas... The kit car thing that you're talking about with people like Dax, who, as I said, at one point were probably, along with Westfield, the biggest kit car supplies, and Britain is the home of the kit car, obviously, yeah, hugely. Yeah. They exist in other places, but not to the extent that they do here. No. And it's, it's flipped. Maybe some of those guys that are now building a kit car in retirement might be guys who built a special you know, you know, 40-odd or, or, or 50 years ago, a guy who was, they were building it when they were 18, 19, and now they're building a kit car when they're sort of, you know, in their 70s. Yeah. I mean, I went I went on, also, after many years working there, I worked there for 30 years, but the company went bust in the end because the governor gave, it, gave the company to his son, and his son just frittered it away. Oh, that never works. And then uh, me and one of the other guys there, Pete, my, one of my best friends, Peter Walker, who was the, the other sort of designer, de- uh, engineer, we, we left and started our own business, XCS. Right. And we, we built this really nice space-framed chassis with a Corvette LS engine in it, supercharged, and we sold a few of these chassis. Um, but everybody that wanted this car, because this car, as a built car, it's got to sell for sort of £80,000. Yeah so many whizzy bits on it um, it's all like billet aluminium upright it's no donor vehicle it's all brand new purpose built and uh, we, we sold a few and built a demonstrator car for ourselves but by this time I was 60 something and deciding I wanted to knock it on the head yeah and we've sold it it's now been it's uh, uh, based in Saffron Walden just down the road from here Company, a couple of guys have bought it and they're pump, pumping a load more money into it Again, but mainly they're they're sort of aiming at some um, built cars um, yeah. and a, a much higher um, sort of cost and, and everything, you know. So, do you think there's still a market for? Do you think there's a continuing market for kit cars, self-built cars, or do you cars think are that the problem with, with the IVA, aren't they? People don't like that's what's over the year, the last few years. I think IVA and SVA has has put so many people off of building a car uh, that it has really affected that, that the entire kit car industry. Mm. Um, and it's, I think that's what sort of why it's not as good now as it was maybe you know 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago even. Um, it, and it's just got worse and worse in all the time I've been in the industry. I mean, when I first started, all you had to do was build a car, you, you, you filled in some forms, a man come round and looked at it, and then they give you a number plate, and away you went. Yeah. 
<laughs> I went to get um, a bike SVA. We, we built a cafe racer and we took it to the local station. And uh, the guy that was there before me had this contraption <laughs> that had in the back. I'm trying to think what engine it was in the back. It, was, it wasn't a Beetle engine. Was it a Subaru? I think it was a Subaru. Right. But um, he, he was from the school of kind of square tube and checker plate. Do you know that school? Horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of checker plate and there was a lot of square tube and there was a lot of cutting and there was a lot of welding and there was a lot of weight. And then I was trying to identify the front forks. They were, I think they were, they were Honda. They were like mid-80s Honda, I think. I was looking yeah. at the wheel and, and this, that and the other. And... Um, it failed. I mean, it failed so catastrophically. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, there were these sharp edges, and there, there weren't a couple of them. It was almost like if you'd said, could you design a vehicle so that in any sort of incident, it, like, slices pedestrians into, into salami? You know, it, it was like that. There was that. Yeah. And then there was the fact that when they weighed it, when they put it on the, when they put it on the scales, 80% of the weight was... <laughs> At the back, and 20%, 20% of the guy went, no, you can't have that massive. And plus, he was trying to explain to him, the contact patch in the front was a motorcycle tyre. Two yeah. giant car tyres on the back. You know, like, it's the old CX500 forks on the front as well, holding a, a big diesel engine or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, he kind of said to me, the guy was great. I mean, they, they shouldn't have. Well, I won't say when it was because he let me. He let me into the bit where, you, out of journalistic interest, I wanted to, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, come in. I'll show you what I do." Like, and he wasn't really supposed to. It was supposed to be done, in, you know, in private. But uh, you're not supposed to be there while he's telling you what is wrong or or isn't isn't wrong with your machine. But he was saying, "Do you see why we have to have it, Steve?" And I said, "Yeah, because that thing's a death trap, and it literally it shouldn't be on the road. This is why." This is why this has to exist. And I think it's okay for guys like us to look back at all the stuff that we did back in the day. And yeah. if, if this show is one thing, it's middle-aged men talking about how things were better when we were young. Right, I realise that. Every week we do it. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons we do it is because we were right. But a lot, a lot of bad things happened. You know, we have stories like you went into the front of a Dorothy Perkins because the sidecar wasn't properly attached to your bike. I went flying down the street on a Vespa that we'd hacksawed to bits, not realising we'd taken all the integrity out of the out of the monocoque, and went flying into a, a fence, which fortunately was the one that stopped you from trespassing on the railway and was source was like a sort of chicken wire type arrangement. So it, it was all it just sort of caught me and threw me back onto the onto the cobbles, and it's all right us saying that, but I've got another I've got other stories, and I bet you have that I could tell right now that are pretty damn horrific. Oh, they, yeah. they, they don't have a nice ending. People don't get up and walk away. Horrible yeah. things happen. And the reason horrible things happen is because... One of the reasons they happen is because we did crazy stuff that we shouldn't have on machines that shouldn't have been on the road. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the custom bike world, especially, you see, you see some, some right horrendous... Oh, I rode this chopper... This, that had won, again, I'm not going to say whose it was, won numerous awards. It looked amazing. I mean, not to my taste, but I could see that it was a proper piece of work. I rode it down the road and I thought, it wouldn't go in a straight line. The, the, the way the forks, and there was so much weight in the front wheel, because it was... Trailing one of, in the wrong place, that's what they always do wrong. Yeah, and it was one of those front wheels that had literally 
I, I don't know how they do this, but literally 300 spokes in it, you know, for effect. Yeah. And so the amount of... That's like a flywheel. <laughs> the amount of weight that there was in that wheel, it was... Yeah. At low speed, it kept constantly wanting to flop over. And then as you gathered speed, it wouldn't turn. It just wanted to track straight. And I went back and the guy was like, what do you think? And I was like, great, amazing. <laughs> I was thinking, I never want to ride anything like that again. Some things are for looking at, great. You know, it's a work of art. Bikes, bikes like we, we mentioned Uncle Bont, John Reed. I remember doing um, a thing for the television. It might have been for Top Gear. And it was about uh, a bike show that they held at some prestigious exhibition hall, the Gas Hall in Birmingham. In Bir- Birmingham Town Hall is an amazing building. And they had this custom bike show. And there were the famous Yamahas that, that John Reed built. Do you remember that? You must remember those bikes. Oh, yeah. When they commissioned I mean, him. It was, they were so different again. It, it's sort of like um, Arlen Nessie style. Yeah. 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 A, a, a similar take on that. Yeah. And I mentioned about riding them, and people just started laughing. And they went, no, no, no. <laughs> We've gone way past riding at this point. Yeah, they're for looking at. And I get it. Sometimes, not so much with a car, maybe, but there was a time when motorcycles just went past being rideable and just pure works of art. And rather than be one of those people who says, oh, if you can't ride it, what's the point of it? And stuff like that. I kind of get it. People were pursuing something to... uh, a point of perfection that always just seemed a little bit out of reach. And the yeah. stuff that they did, because I think, didn't John go on to work for Custom Chrome International in the States and, and design a lot of parts? Yeah, that, he did that, his design work, didn't he, for them? Yeah, that ended up on actual road bikes. Yeah. So in the same way, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to say it, in the same way like, like the space programme led to Teflon-coated frying pans... <laughs> Right, I'm going to say it. What John Reed did with those unrideable bikes, eventually the, the influence of that was fell on road-going motorcycles. You've got to push the boundaries to find new stuff, is what well, I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult with a bike to come up with something unique and novel. Um, you really have to sort of think outside the box to do it. Yeah, and if you're a custom bike builder, and it gets back to what we're saying, if you're doing it to earn a living, the last thing you want to be doing is being ahead of the curve. Because if you're the guy who builds stuff where people go, oh, what's that? (laughs) Then it's much better to be the guy who offers perhaps a more affordable version of the next big thing. So, if, you know, if you're building bikes that look a bit like Indian Larry's bikes or Jesse James's bikes or at one time the Orange County Choppers guys, yeah. if you were offering people a version of that for half the price, you'd probably yeah. make a very nice living. If, yeah. you're, if you're somebody like Roger Almond who, here in the UK who sort of, you know, refuses to follow any trend, refuses to yeah. build commercially popular machines, just follows his own his own mind and builds these amazing bikes but which just look like nothing else that anyone else is doing have virtually zero commercial application you're just like yeah well that's amazing but i don't think it's going to make you it's not going to make you rich well, it's, it's, basically if you look at some of my bikes that's that, the same thing they were always um like my, my honda for example that, that i've got bucket fulls of trophies upstairs in the loft for it but it won trophies everywhere, but um, it was a, you take it to a show and there wasn't a class to put it in. Is it a street fighter? Is it a chopper? Whatever. 
and um, there was people that hated it, but it always got shown. <laughs> it was so different, everybody, whether it be, and wherever you took it, and even now, I've still got it now, and it looks a bit of a wreck now, but if I take it to a local show and park it, there's always a crowd of people around it looking at it. I remember it's, my pal Richard... got a trophy with it last year, and it's all, I've covered half of it. Wow! Well, it looks, it looks it's fiberglass, but it looks like it's made of rusty steel now. <laughs> my pal Richard built a bike called... Um, well, he called it Punk, uh, punk Rock, and it was he, he was telling people, what he was saying to people was, it was a Bruff Superior engine in a chopper. <laughs> just right. to, And, it, and it, it was a Jap engine. It was a Jap V-twin. Its origins were a little more humble than being ripped out of a Bruff Superior, but that was the story that went with the bike. Just to... I was going to say something that I shouldn't say, because it's a nasty word, but just to mess with people's heads... Do you know what I mean? To say, yeah, yeah, it's over, bro, superior. What? What? How do you know? Deliberately to provoke a reaction. Because, of course, that's what custom bikes were for. Whether it was a rocker riding a a cafe racer, whether it was like you're watching uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper up there on the screen, you know, with with those those choppers, or whether it's Street Fighters, you know, and I was the the original editor of Street Fighters magazine. Street Fighters in the 90s with big turbos and crazy exhaust systems and, you know, pulling massive wheelies, all that sort of stuff. It was, it was to basically to get noticed and annoy people. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know. So tell us about just before we go. Tell us about that hot rod you're building. I'm, I'm in, I see. It was, I saw it yeah. on social media. I thought, wow, well, that looks interesting. But it also looks like a lot of work. Well, it, it is it, again. But it, uh, it, I cheated a bit because the XCS um, uh, chassis that we've done for the Cobra, it's basically the, the front and back of that Cobra chassis, which has mm. got this camber compensation suspension that my, my friend Peter Walker designed. Um. So, yeah, it's got this camber compensation suspension front and back, and then it's round tube, and again, LS uh, Chevrolet engine and gearbox. Um, I've already built one with the same setup. And, and again, it's... <laughs> in the hot rod world, people hate it. <laughs> you can't... It's not a Model A, look. It's just, you know, it's... It hasn't got a beam axle, and it hasn't got a nine-inch forward back axle, and it's got a heaven. And why has it got an injected fuel engine in it? And uh, you, there's so many people out there that in this hot rod world that, that are so anal. It's irritating to say the least. I can, I can see the point to a degree, right? And if they want to be all purists, but let me tell you something. I uh, something that I did that's I didn't buy a hot rod, and I didn't buy a hardtail bobber. What I did buy was I bought some reissued Levi's. Levi's recently reissued some jeans, and they called them 1967. They were, they, were, they were pretty damn expensive, but they said, these are in the cut that we had in 1967, and these are the denim that we used in 1967. So I buy them. They come in the post. I put them on. It's like wearing a suit of armour. I couldn't believe how bloody uncomfortable they were. After half an hour... I had to take yeah. them off. And, of course, there was bloody blue dye all over my legs just, oh, from, yeah. just from wearing them. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, it's all very well being a purist, but there's a lot of stuff that you have to put up with yeah. if you are a purist, which yeah. we forgot. We've only remembered the good stuff. Oh, yeah, those old Levi's looked great, didn't they? Hold on a second. Yeah, they looked great after you'd had them on for about a year. Then they looked great. But yeah. there was a lot of wearing in before you got to that point. 
when they started to offer us jeans that you could just go and buy, put on, oh, yeah, great, sorted. No, not quite as good, didn't look entirely authentic, but a lot easier to live with. And I, I think, I think you know, you know better than me, but that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're building something that's got the look, but is a lot easier to live with. Well, and also it's fun. I've been doing track days with it. <laughs> what, like sort of lining up next to Porsche GTs and stuff Ferrari, like that? <laughs> Uh, a McLaren. Um, the last track that I did, the guy that ran it, he got a McLaren, a really fancy, you know, fa- uh, what about seven hundred horsepower, I think. Yeah, they? they're they're all really fancy. The, the McLaren yeah. don't do not fancy. Yeah. No, but I, I I beat everything else on the track. That I couldn't beat. I couldn't get him past him, but I followed him for about five laps, and he only gained about a couple of hundred yards on me. <laughs> <laughs> did he get upset? This, oh. suspen- this is the suspension system on this car. It works so well. If you search, um, go on YouTube and search um, XCS Cobra. Right. Uh, there's a bit of uh, auto car did a bit on it, and they p- compared it with lots of other cars and done a test drive on it. But, yeah, the, the grip levels are phenomenal. And um, But it looks like, you know, it's, it's got the old 1930s um, grill, Model A grill on it, big, them big, Nine-inch diameter headlights, <laughs> but then I'm running it on track tyres, uh, Toyo R Triple Eights, and with this this suspension, it, it is such a monster of a car. They must have thought when you when you took it, when you started taking it to track days, people must have thought, "Who is this idiot?" What's you yeah, know? They must yeah, have thought it, yeah. it's one of those things that's just designed to go fast in a straight line. As soon as he gets out there, he's going to be wearing the tyre wall on the first corner. And then you're going around, going past everybody and keeping up with, like, the fastest McLaren that's oh, yeah. <laughs> That must have freaked people out. All the marshals there loved me at the end of the day. It was down at Castle Coombe. They were all sort of talking to me and taking the mickey out of me to start with, and then they all kept coming up to me during the day and, blimey, that goes, doesn't it? <laughs> so you go past him. <laughs> there was, like, everybody was talking to me at the beginning. By the end of the day, nobody had talked to nobody me. Nobody had talked to you. <laughs> Story of my life. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.